0: First Free Church, it's so good to be with you uh, this morning. Y'all, be honest with me. How many of y'all, you were singing and you're like, I'm a child of God, lock this computer. Anyone? Anyone? Was it just me? Um, Hey, can we give a hand for our tech team, honestly, for fixing that as quick as they did? There are about a billion things, that's a rough estimate, but about a billion things that can go wrong each morning, and they are just on it every morning Um, And whenever I preach, they're like, oh gosh, here he comes with all of his last minute requests and they still put it together because they're awesome. So thankful for them. Thankful for our mothers. Happy Mother's Day to you guys. Uh, uh, I'm thankful for my own mother. You know, I I stumbled upon a letter, a really heartfelt letter I wrote to, to my mom on Mother's Day a couple years back. And I just said, mom, I love you because I was born from you. And uh, I, I'm thankful, Mom. I love you because you birthed me. Um, so really heartfelt. Before you judge me, this was several years ago, okay? This was sophomore year, all right? So, um, so I was younger, I was younger. Uh, I, also, a happy Mother's Day to my wife, Abby. This is our first Mother's Day, so if you're watching online, I love you, and I'm so thankful for you mothering our son, Benjamin. We're so lucky to have you in our lives, um, and, uh, and I love you because you birthed our son. So, um... I've got to say, guys, we live in some strange times. And I know this because I was watching TV the other day and a fast food commercial came on. And you guys know, when you watch a fast food commercial, they do a lot to make that food look edible. And not just edible, but like appetizing. I mean, they literally have people who work full time to put makeup on burgers and like work it around. You gotta look this up, they, they legit spend like hours trying to, like there's these artists who create the burgers to make them look just so appetizing, and then what? Your expectations uh, just absolutely plummet the moment you open up the bag and, and take a look in there and you're like, is this for me? Did I order this, right? But, all right, so that's a problem. I, I hate that they lie to us, but the other day, I was watching a food commercial And y'all, I don't know if there's like a food artist strike or something going on, but the food looked absolutely nasty. And it was like, that's exactly what it looks like in person. And so I I, I don't know about you, but I appreciate the transparency. I would prefer prefer to be lied to at this point. I'm realizing that. I I thought I didn't wanna be lied to, but now I'm like, no, I'll never go to a fast food restaurant if you don't make up the burger. And uh, we all have this propensity to, uh, to create high expectations for things. I, uh, <clears throat> I worked in a church down in Texas uh, several years back and uh, I was working with some students, and I I never fish, I've never fished before, I'm not a good fisherman at all, I wouldn't even consider myself a fisherman, but I had some students who liked to fish. So I went to an academy sports down there and uh, decided I'd buy a fishing rod. Turns out I bought a deep sea fishing rod, and we were not deep sea fishing, Um, but it had a a sale price on it that I couldn't beat, and so uh, I, I bought it, we went out, we started fishing, and uh, one thing, I'm, I'm terrible at fishing, I learned very little. One thing I learned though, is you always, always, always pick the right angle when you catch a fish, all right? Because we caught this fish, we have a picture up here. I caught this, uh, this awesome fish, my friend held it for me, and, uh, and we got the right angle. And then we decided, you know what, maybe we should actually show the realistic uh, size of the fish that I, that I was able to, to catch. It, it looked really impressive, um, and it was about the size of the hook. So it, it, I, I, that's probably the biggest fish I've ever caught. Um, but, uh, but in any case, we tend to, we tend to uh, try and build up expectations for things. You know, I'm very leery when people say, this is going to be the best thing ever but I do have to say one thing. This Saturday, Mother Daughter Mud Run, if you are a mom or a mentor of a sixth or 12th grade girl, this will be the best thing ever, okay? In all seriousness though, we're gonna be in a parable. We're we're, uh, studying the uh, parables of Jesus and we're gonna be in one where uh, Jesus actually tends to uh, subvert the expectations of his audience. And sometimes uh, this is actually a a common practice for parables. Jesus wasn't being deceptive. He wasn't trying to trick them. But a lot of times parables weren't just stories used to communicate truths. They were also ways that people would, uh, teachers would use to subvert people's expectations and help them realize where they've gotten things wrong in their expectations of reality. And so we're going to be in the book of Luke if you wanna turn there uh, with me, um, and we're gonna be in chapter 15, we're gonna start in verse 11 and kind of pick up where we were uh, last week. So it says here in, in verse 11, and, and by the way, this is a parable that many of us heard. We, we've heard this several times before. Uh, if you've been in church for a long time, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard this Before A lot of times it's called the parable of the prodigal son. But but today, this morning, I just wanna uh, uh, suggest we call this the parable of the three L's. All right, so that's what I'm gonna call it this morning. The parable of the three L's, I can do that. All right, the titles, if you look in your Bibles, there's titles over different paragraphs that's not in the original Greek. Those titles are added on. And so I'm gonna add it on uh, this morning. So the parable of the three L's, here we go, verse 11. To illustrate the point further, let's pause right there because uh, what point is he talking about? Last week, if you weren't here with us, uh, Adam, one of our other pastors, uh, taught on the parable of the lost sheep. You see, Jesus was talking to Pharisees and and the leaders of the time, because Jesus was hanging out with sinners. Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors, prostitutes, people who were hated and despised by the religious leaders, people who were living in sin willfully. And the religious leaders are coming to Jesus and going, you're supposed to be a teacher of the law. why, Why are you hanging out with these sinners? What are you doing? And so Jesus starts these three different parables. He does a parable on the lost, coin and a parable on the lost sheep. And he's trying to communicate to the, the chief priests and to the Pharisees, here is why I'm with them. I'm here to save them. And he goes into this whole explanation of what repentance ought to look like and starts to subvert their expectations and so as we talk about the expectations being subverted, I want you to try and put your mind uh, into, uh, into what, what the Pharisees would have been thinking as Jesus gives this last final parable in response to their question, why do you hang out with sinners and tax collectors? Verse 12, or, or continuing verse 11 rather, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons, The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. So here we have this son who decides, you know what, dad? I want my inheritance now. I I, I want what you have for me. When you're you're, uh, ready to die and that you give that to me, I, I don't wanna wait for you to die. I want that stuff right now. You see, the son right off the bat is saying, I want these things more than I care about my relationship with you, my father. He's saying, I, I want freedom. I want to exercise freedom as much as I can. And, and this is a pretty normal response. The son is likely about a teenager. And that's a normal response for a teenager and saying, Hey, I want some freedom for my parents. I want to get some uh, ability to make choices for my own. And, and that's okay. But taken to this extreme is where the son gets in trouble because he says, Man, I don't care at all about you. I want complete independence from you. In fact, I don't care if you died tomorrow. I want this stuff right now. All you are to me is the inheritance that you're going to give me. And so we can already understand that this is a disrespectful thing for a son to do. But in this culture, especially this culture, highly, highly valued a son's obedience to their father a strict adherence to whatever your parents commanded of you. you. You respected your father and mother. You honored your father and mother. That mother. That was one of the 10 commandments. And so already you can uh, just assume that the, the religious leaders, they're listening into Jesus and going, oh man, this guy's awful. This, this kid, how, this is a terrible kid. This dad ought to discipline him, punish him right off the bat. And yet... The dad decides to do it. The dad gives him a third of the portion of his inheritance. And it's likely that a third of all of the dad's belongings he had to give to his son, it's likely that he actually had to sell some of his property even to be able to afford giving a third of everything he owned to his son. So he's given all this away. It says that the son goes right in, takes it, walks away and sells it all, and just goes crazy on wild living. And typically, even if the son knew he would receive an inheritance during this time, it would still be under the father's possession until the father died. Or or typically, even if the son was able to have it, it would still technically be the property of his father, and so at this point, for him to go and sell it all before his father's even dead, it wasn't just like an unethical, wicked thing to do. It was unlawful. It was not just. It was not just uh, unkind. It was potentially a crime that he's committing here, and yet the father allows him to do it. See, the son represents the first of the L's. This L is licentiousness. It's the son taking advantage of his father out of selfish ambition and out of gluttony and wanting things over his relationship with his father. He's saying, I want all of this. I delight in the things of the world. And not just do I delight in good things given to me, but I care so much more about them that, they will, that this passion consumes me. And I don't care about anything else, even, even the relationship with my father even if that gets completely ruined for the rest of my life, I don't care. I, I want these things now. And he stabs his own father in the back. He elevates freedom to do whatever his carnal appetites require him to fulfill. How often do we give into this lie that the gifts of the world are gonna offer us more than the giver of those gifts. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. I used to go to an all-boys camp growing up and it was all sorts of fun, we did crazy things. Uh, it was a really rustic camp. I mean, we slept in lean-tos, which are just cabins with only three walls, and so you have an open face towards the fire pit in the middle and a few of them around. And um, we just had a, a lot of fun. One time we took, a, a, if you know, the Axe body spray. We took half of a full can of Axe body spray and threw it in the fire. And that's not a smart thing to do, but it was a fun thing to do. And uh, we just did, um, had so many fun memories. I grew up going to this. I even became a counselor one day. Every Thursday night, it was one of my favorite Favorite times during the weeks at camp. Every Thursday night, we'd, we'd have a bonfire. And we'd sing worship songs together out at the fire with, with a, a guitar and a, and a cajon. And um, every year, we'd have this massive fire that they'd build. And we'd sing this song at the very beginning to start off the bonfire, it's starting to get lit. It was called Jolly Roll and Kerosene. What that means is they would take a, a roll of toilet paper, a full roll, dunk it in kerosene, and then put it at the bottom of this, they build a, a teepee shaped fire, they put it in the bottom and they'd light that toilet paper roll and it would just go up in flames in seconds. And just like that, it was gone. And it would just light up the, the rest of the fire perfectly. And guys, you and me, we are soaked in entertainment, we are soaked in possessions, in material wealth, and all the pleasures the world has to offer. We're in a nation where we're blessed to to have so much incredible material wealth and we're soaked in it. And the problem is, many of us, myself included, we care so much about that, we care so much more about the gifts and we get so consumed in the things of the world that's a huge problem because all the things of this world are temporary things. Moth and rust destroy them. As Jesus says, they can go up in an instant. All it takes is one spark for us to lose everything. And if that's where we put our hope, if that's where we put our life, if, if all of our motivation every day is just uh, these things of the world, maybe a new possession or, or just getting to that vacation, or getting home to to sit in front of the TV, whatever it is, if that's all that our life is about, man, that's a foolish, foolish way of living because those things can go up in an instant. And worse yet, when those become the number one part of our lives, we end up turning away from our Father and disrespecting him and saying, No, 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 this will fulfill me. The things you give me will fulfill me, not you yourself, you are not enough. This is what I need. And that's what the son did to his father. So he disregards him. The son disregards his father, he disrespects him. And the crazy part is the father disregards all the customs of the time and decides I'm gonna give you this. And so here you have these chief priests and Pharisees going, this dad is an idiot. I mean, seriously, he's lazy, he's cowardice and he's just stupid. I mean, what dad would ever allow their son to go and do this and ruin their entire lives and take away a third of his possessions with him? Back in a time where a dad should have punished him and Certain dads probably would have disinherited their son for even asking such a thing. Jesus continues in verse 14. He says, about the time his money ran out after spending it all, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him but no one gave him anything. That's it. That's the end of the parable. It's a great parable about how sin destroys our lives, about if you live a life of licentiousness, if you you just give in to your carnal pleasures all day long and that is what your life is about, you you put all your trust and hope into these temporary things that that can go up in flames, they will go up in flames. You'll get what you deserve if you reject your heavenly father and go in towards all these things, you you care more about the gift than the giver, then the world's gonna be cruel to you. And, and, And like this son, who's now destitute, who's now unclean, impure, desperate, that's what a life of licentiousness leads to. The Jews actually had a saying, may a curse come upon the man who cares for swine, A person who is around pigs, pigs were considered ceremonially ceremonially unclean. And here he is not just caring for them, but trying to eat the food that they're eating. That's what sin does. It, It leaves us broken, lost, twisted, our desires, we don't even understand them. And the worst part of sin is that it leaves us wanting even more, even though we're broken, lost, and destitute. And this all made sense to Jesus' listeners. So it's like, great, finally, Jesus. You've been saying all this weird stuff about a coin and a sheep. And I'm, I'm gonna be honest, Jesus, we kind of checked out for a little bit, but this, this parable, this is great. Thank you. Now now you get it. You get that we shouldn't be with these sinners. So let's go, bud. Let's go to get barbecue. I don't know if they have barbecue. I guess, yeah, they could have brisket. Um, so they're like, let's go get barbecue, Jesus. Let's like go hang out together. The problem is, Jesus kept talking. I imagine the Pharisees are turning to leave. Jesus is like, oh, hang on, there's still more to this. It says in 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant." So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The the son is finally come back to his senses. He's seen what a life of licentiousness leads to. He's seen that, that his sin has just left him broken and lost and wanting more. And so he goes, devises this plan to go and say, I need to apologize to my dad. I need to say sorry, it's my, it's my only option left. And we might be tempted to ask a question that was likely asked in the minds of these Pharisees and chief priests as Jesus was talking is, was he really sorry? What I mean was, was he really sorry that he broke a relationship with his father or was he just sorry that he got himself into this mess? Was he just sorry about where his sin ended him up? You know, my mom would always say, "Are, are you really sorry about this? Or are you just sorry that you got caught? But Jesus doesn't answer that question. You see, I don't think that mattered to Jesus. What mattered was that this son was sorry was turning to his father. See, last week, Adam talked about the Jewish leaders having three steps that they considered uh, the, the, the action of repentance requiring these three steps. And these three steps were saying, hey, you have to prove that you are repentant in order to receive the forgiveness of God. You have to do all these outward things to show God that you're sorry, and show other people that you're sorry. But in this parable, Jesus is showing that the man of licentiousness is forgiven just by turning to Jesus, just by turning to his father. In fact, before this son can even spell out the words, sorry, the father's already running towards him, ready to embrace him we get this sense that the father's waiting around, looking each day, looking out at that road, saying, when is my son coming back? Maybe today he's coming back. He's sitting at the uh, dinner table each night, seeing that empty seat, thinking of his son, going, when, maybe, maybe, just maybe he'll come back. There's no guarantee. He finally spots his son that day. It says he runs to him. And culturally, this was, I mean, if, if the Pharisees already thought that this dad was ridiculous, it was, it was so shameful for a man to be running across in an open air, uh, in an open air, I mean, I don't know what's called, dress. And I mean, it was, it was not culturally normative in that time for a dad to run. And yet this dad is sprinting to his son. Not only was it not customary, but this dad goes and hugs his son who has been around pigs for for potentially weeks, if not months. So not only was it not customary, it was unlawful for this dad to touch his son who was unclean because the dad would become unclean as well. He doesn't care. He hugs his son anyway and embraces him and kisses him. God's word tells us that that we serve a holy God. He is holy, he is set apart, he is ultimately glorious and clean. But in our sin. We said, I I wanna become God. I I wanna be God. I wanna experience what I wanna experience. I don't wanna live under the law of God. I don't wanna live in relationship with God. I care more about what I want. I wanna be God. I wanna decide my own destiny. We sinned against God. Every single one of us has sin in our hearts and that defiles us. That separates us from a holy God who can't be in our presence. And so God had every right to leave us to condemnation for eternity. But God's word says that Jesus loved, or God loved us so much, he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins so that we could have eternity with him. Y'all, can we think about this for a second? The greatest transformation that we can ever experience from eternal condemnation to eternal salvation, from death to life, from being lost to being found. The greatest uh, moment that can ever happen in a human being's life, coming to know Jesus, it, it's, it doesn't happen in this uh, great a moment of an earthquake or fireworks display going off. There's not this massive tremor across the world when, this, when our souls completely transform, when our lives are, are given over to Jesus. Instead, Jesus says, you know the best way to describe what that greatest moment is? It's an intimate embrace with our Father. Could there be anything more satisfying to our souls than knowing that our creator is ready with arms wide open to embrace us, despite our sin, despite our shame, despite the wickedness in our hearts. This is a God who knows all. He knows we're likely gonna sin again. He knows we're not gonna be perfect. We're prone to wander. And yet he chooses to embrace us before we can even speak the words, Father, forgive me. As they embrace, the son's finally able to speak. In verse 21, he says, the son says to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. This son of mine was dead, has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. The father's, he's like, we need to celebrate. Let's begin the festivities. This is worth rejoicing over just as Jesus explicitly said in the parable of the lost coin earlier in, in chapter 15 and verse 10, he says, in the same way there's joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. There's nothing I can think of more joyous than a sinner giving his life to Jesus and being transformed by the gospel says there's a celebration, a party going on in heaven with the angels whenever that happens because a sinner was lost and is now found, has gone from being completely spiritually dead in their sins to now receiving eternal life. That's an incredible transformation. That's worth celebrating for this dad. Now, now don't get me wrong. This son... I can imagine things got pretty awkward back at home moving forward, right? Can imagine he's kind of going over to his closet and realizing, oh, there's nothing here. I sold it all. He goes to maybe that corner of the property that was his favorite spot to go fishing or to just hang out, and he realizes, we don't own this plot of land anymore. Or or he's around his dad and and, and maybe he's just reminded, as he looks at his father, he's reminded of the, of the ways he's hurt his dad. And it's likely that this son, I mean, if you think about it, it's not like he's just magically cured from his gluttony and from his selfish ambition. I'm sure he still struggled with that daily. And so I don't want us to get this wrong, uh, this misconception that somehow, you know, when Jesus saves us, and pulls us from death to life, that all of a sudden we're gonna live a perfect life or that we're not gonna face the consequences of past sins. I mean, we're free from our past sins. There's no longer any condemnation for them. There's no shame. There's no guilt from them. But there still may be some some traces, some remnants of the consequences of the decisions we've made in our past. And yet, We're still free from the condemnation of sin and being enslaved to it. So so now Jesus has answered the question that the religious leaders asked. Why am I with these sinners? Because they're lost and dead in their sin and I wanna bring them to life. I wanna bring them into eternal relationship with me because I love them. But again, the parable doesn't end. I imagine the, the, the Pharisees are starting to like look at their watches or wrist sundials, whatever they were, and they're like, all right, Jesus, uh, we, gotta, we gotta wrap this up. You know, we've uh, got important things to do, so um, we'll see you later. And again, Jesus is like, hang on, hang on, hang on. This is the most important part. And I imagine that this part is where Jesus leans forward or, or takes a step closer to them. Because he's gonna address not just their question now, as he's done in three different parables, but now he's gonna address their heart. And now he's gonna reveal something about what's going on in their lives. It says in verse 25, and, and remember, we've got a party going on, all right? There's a celebration. The dad is rejoicing. They say an entire calf, that could feel the whole village. An entire calf would be, he's invited the entire neighborhood to come and join. Like everyone and their mother is there and they're pumped and it's like a crazy, raid. They're having just such a wild time together. It's all fun. But there's one person, there's one person who somehow misses the big news of the day and misses the invite. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. So the whole village is invited. But somehow, somehow this oldest son This is the invite. The oldest son who should have been there to reconcile the younger son and the father as the oldest should have been the one to do that as was custom at the time, but he was gone working. See, Jesus uses this illustration in this parable and it's so ridiculous, it's almost beyond the point of belief. And surely the Pharisees are thinking, this son is even more foolish than the first. How is he this out of touch with what's going on? And yet, that was Jesus' point. He's saying, You Pharisees, you religious leaders, you are so out of touch with reality. You see, you are supposed to be the leaders of my nation, you are supposed to be the ones who are to help reconcile sinners to me. You were the one who was supposed to be there, but instead, what were you doing? You were gone out in the fields trying to do all the work you could. That was your focus all your life. They don't have a real relationship with the Father. How then could they ever perform the duties that they were expected to do to lead the nation of Israel, to lead these sinners, these other Jewish sinners? who are supposed to be reconciled to God. Some of you this morning might need to hear this because you're out of touch with the God of the Bible. And so I hope, I hope when we look at this older brother's response, we can examine our hearts and see if this has been our heart. Verse 28, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Notice something in that response. It says these three words or four words, I've slaved for you is that what work for his father has been? Is that all that it's been? It's been slavery. It's been nothing but hard work and that's it. You see, this this son represents the second L, which is legalism. The heart of this second son is legalism. He's failed in a new way. Unlike the younger son who took advantage of the love of his father, this son works tirelessly every day to earn the love of his father. Is working nonstop, so much so that he misses everything else that's going on because he wants more than anything to earn the love of his father. And so he refuses to even enjoy God's love. And he has worked so hard what's the point? What's the point in working so hard if you miss the celebration? What's the point in working so hard if you've never once enjoyed the love of your dad? This man's not a man of joy, he's a man of anger. Some of you, you you take no joy in sin. I mean, you look at people who are living a life of sin and you say, I just, I don't understand that. How, how could you enjoy that? How could you take any pleasure in that? Some of you, your, your problem isn't that you delight in sin. Your problem is you delight in nothing. You take no delight in, in God's love because you're spending all your life trying to earn it. In everything you do, you're trying to somehow deserve his grace. that's you, I can guarantee you're exhausted. When we put all our merit in the work we're doing for God, the work itself becomes slavery. The work itself becomes this binding obsession. And we we refuse to delight in God. It sucks the joy. Legalism, guys, sucks the joy out of following Jesus. And perhaps worse yet, it it disrespects our father because it says, hey, your grace wasn't good enough for me. Your grace is not sufficient for me. I've got to add on to that and and it sucks the joy. It seeks to suck the joy out of everyone else's experience with Jesus. Check Check out what the oldest son continues. He says, yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. The older brother, guys, he can't even come to calling him his brother. He says, this son of yours. He says, this is no brother of mine. He may be your son that you've chosen to love. But what father are you? That you love this father or this son disrespects his father like the younger son. And, and, and guys, granted, he wasn't wrong. I mean, his things weren't unfounded. I mean, his son literally took a third of the inheritance, wished his father was dead, walked away, sold it all. And then, oh, here he comes back and says he's sorry. You sure he's sorry, dad? He probably just wanted a place to stay. And that's all this older son can think about. And and, and he's missing the entire point of grace. And I wonder how many of us, we seek more than anything else for God to mete out justice on those who in our eyes do wrong. How many times we turn on the news and a new police shooting or a new mass shooting or another new tragedy comes about and and we're quick. If you're like me, you're quick to try and find something to confirm your biases that you already have. And you say, whose fault is it? Who can we blame for this? Who should uh, get uh, the justice from this? Can we not just stop? set the, the stupid politics aside and just look at this for what it is. This is a tragedy. These are image bearers of God. This is an image bearer of God who's been killed. This is an image bearer of God who's killed another person, another image bearer of God. Is that not enough for us? And yet what our tendency is to do is to, to demonize who we perceive as our opponent in that situation. See, we like to start to fantasize about what evil intentions that person had when they bumped into us in the hall or when they were rude to us or did something to personally offend us. Because if we can demonize them and no longer recognize them as an image bearer of God, it's a lot easier to be angry at them. It's a lot easier want justice in our minds. Whether it's the person who offended us or the politician on TV, it's much easier to hate someone when we strip them of the identity that they have as image bearers of God. It's the same way any genocide throughout history has begun is when a group of people is found and we strip the identity that they have as image bearers of God. That's how it's always started. And we ought to be very cautious when we begin to find ourselves stripping someone from their identity as an image bearer of God. If you do tend to have this legalistic line of thinking, you need to see the father's response. He says in verse 31, look, dear son, You've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Again, the father humbles himself and responds lovingly to his older son. You know, typically Jesus presents himself as pretty diametrically opposed to the religious leaders. I mean, at one point he's like, you are a brood of vipers. And another point he says, you're a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but you are dead inside. And even to to the point that he's trying to make here, he points back to Hosea 6 in Matthew 9. He says, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I mean, Jesus has biting words for the Pharisees, but here, here he shows a different side. He shows that the Father has compassion. But these rebukes that Jesus gives the Pharisees is out of a love for them. And he tenderly reminds him, not just my son, but your brother is back. Jesus isn't gonna let this older son pull a fast one on him. Jesus is not gonna let him demonize his brother. Jesus is not gonna let him try and strip that identity as a fellow image bearer of God for us. And so guys, if if a brother or sister is trying to strip that away in order to, to slander someone else, in order to talk poorly of someone else, you need to call them out on it. You need to stop them and say, you recognize that that person is an image bearer of God. Whether they know Jesus or not, they're an image bearer of God. Because if if we're forced to recognize that, I think most of us, we fear God enough to think the best of someone else when we see them as that. Father also reminds me of another truth. He says, everything I have is yours. Literally, everything I have is yours because a third of my possessions, if you don't remember, they're gone. I didn't promise this son a new inheritance. You get the two thirds, everything left. It's all yours. You've got it. Like, like, why are you complaining to me when I've given you everything? And so many of us, we've been given the inheritance of eternity. When we put our, our trust in Christ, He says, welcome, my son, welcome, my daughter, join in the blessings of my kingdom. You get it all, everything, all my inheritance, it's yours. It's all yours. And yet, we yearn for the demise of others who we see as sinners, who we see as as our enemies. Could there be a more explicit way that we stomp on the grace that God gives us? Thank you, God, that he still turns to us in grace, even in our darkest moments. Because just like that, the parable's done. Jesus leaves it at that. There's no follow-up, there's no, uh, here's how the older son responds. He leaves it open as, as if he's giving an invitation to these Pharisees and chief priests to respond to the gospel that he's now laid out in this story. He's saying, both these sinners who are with me, you guys, and and you religious leaders, all of you, there's an invitation open right now to take part in this, to receive the grace of God, to be brought from death to be life, to be found. Guys, both sons are lost. One's lost in wild living, the other is lost toiling to earn the blessing of his father. They both had the same problem. I mean, neither one cared about their relationship with the father. They both disrespected their father. They're both in the same boat. They're both lost. The beauty is that the father attempts to draw them both back in, not just the sinner, not just the legalistic Pharisees, And this is good news because when I look at this story time and time again, I relate to that younger brother, not just because I am the youngest, but because I find myself being so tempted and lured in by the things of this world, by the sin of this world. And that's been a lifelong struggle. And I think most of us, if not all of us, we find ourselves at one of these extremes, if not both at times. Jesus time and time again is opening the door, drawing us back in. We can choose to repent of our licentiousness or our legalism. See, God takes that scarlet L that's written on our chest. He says, I wanna turn that into loved. You are not licentiousness. You are not bound by your licentiousness. You are not bound by your legalism. You're freed because you are loved. And that's the third L of this parable that you and me, if we accept God's grace, if we turn to Him, we could be loved. Could there be a greater identity or a greater motivation for life than to be loved by our Creator, by our Father? There's a longing inside each and every one of us to be loved. And we have that available to us. No longer Do we see laboring for God as slavery or delight in the demise of others? No longer do we delight in the things of this world, but we delight wholly in our God, who alone can satisfy us. Do you see that paradigm shift? A delight in our creator alone. Don't Don't fall back into the patterns of before because the beauty of the gospel is no matter what extreme, I mean, there's more than just those two extremes. We find ourselves into a billion different extremes every day. Don't fall into those patterns of licentiousness or legalism. When you're going about your day and you're, you're tempted, it's been a stressful week or it's been a hard week, and all you can think about, you're living for the weekend. You're living to get to that vacation. You're living to get to that couch where you can sit down and just watch TV. You're, you're living for these things. Remember that youngest son who lived for the gifts rather than the giver and say, no, 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 I wanna delight in God. I want him to be my only motivation for my day. When you're going about the busyness of life and you're saying, I just, I feel like I'm a failure as a mom or I'm a failure as a spouse or I'm a failure as a brother or a friend or a roommate and I need to do better because then I will receive the blessing of God or, or then I'll feel the joy of God, I'll feel closer to God. If I just do good things, then I'll be closer to Him and I'll feel closer to Him. Remember that oldest son how exhausted, how devoid of any joy he was and say, no, 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 no. I I just want to delight in the Father. I don't need to do anything to earn this. Value the relationship you have with Jesus above all else. May he be our delight. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you, Jesus, for opening the door for all of us wherever we may be inclined to fall away from you. Wherever we may be inclined to to find our delight or to find our fulfillment, God, whether it's in trying to earn your grace or we try to delight in the things of this world, God, would you turn them upside down, God? We all know they won't satisfy. We've all felt it. God, would we live our lives delighting in you alone? You'd be our motivation each and every day, Father. I thank you for our mothers here today. God, may it just be a blessed day with families together. And Lord, may we walk in you, loved by you. It's in your name we pray, amen.